Hello everyone, this is Mustafa Al-Habubi, an AM physician. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, ER on the Go. Today's episode is entitled, Another Case of Syncope. Before I get into the case, I would like to mention that the material discussed in our podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be applied without the consultation of a medical expert. Patient information has been changed to protect their identity and privacy. It was a busy monitored care shift. A new patient arrived. The triage notes mentioned a 58 years old lady who was transferred from a nearby city for a syncope that happened two days prior to this presentation. The patient had normal vitals. So our student colleague went to see her. At the same time, the nurse handed us the AKG. We looked at it and identified an abnormal pattern on leads V1 and V2. The staff at that time drew our attention to the tropes, which were around 200. Dear listener, would you mind pausing the podcast now and checking the ECG? I dropped the Twitter link in the episode description where you can see the AKG of the discussed visit and another one for the same patient a few years prior to this presentation. What is your differential at this point? Our colleague student came back. He told us the patient had syncope while taking a shower two, two days prior to presentation. The patient denied any prodrome. She did not have any similar events in the past. She was not confused after the event. She denied any chest pain or difficulty with breathing. She looked quite comfortable. Review of the systems revealed only headache. Physical exam, which included neuro, cardiovascular, respiratory exam were unremarkable. Focus was not done at that time. Reassessment of the patient by our team confirmed the findings described by our colleague student. What is happening with this patient? Given the tropes and the biphasic T-wave pattern seen in V1 and V2 and the absence of chest pain, we thought this could be a Wellens syndrome. Still, how could we explain the syncope? Was there a Brugada component to it? Was it a Brugada syndrome? We called cardiology. They looked at the AKG and agreed this could be cardiac. They recommended starting heparin and antiplatelets, and they'll come to see the patient soon. Since the patient fell down, and it's true, Canadian CT hydrodes were negative for trauma, we still opted to scan given that the patient came from a remote area. And then came our surprise. The patient had a subarachnoid hemorrhage. The pattern seemed to correspond to an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage rather than traumatic one as per the radiology report, which we confirmed by doing CTA of the head and neck. Neurosurgery were consulted and the patient was transferred to the Neurological Institute affiliated with our hospital where she was managed. Joining me today to discuss this case is Dr. Mohammed Badawi. Dr. Badawi is an anesthesiologist and neurointensivist a co-director of the Neurocritical Care Fellowship and site director of anesthesia at the Montreal Neurological Institute affiliated with McGill University in Canada. Welcome, Dr. Badawi. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Dr. Al-Habubi. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. It's my pleasure, and it's our honor to have you with us. Dr. Badawi, 
I will start with asking, why do we make a distinction between aneurysmal and traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage? That's an excellent question. Um, a lot of uh, clinicians, unfortunately, aren't aware of the fact that they're completely, these are two completely different entities. Aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage is a very different disease process with unique patient complications and trajectories. Whereas um, non-aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, such as the perimesencephalic subarachnoid hemorrhage or traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage, uh, the patients follow a completely different trajectory and the complications are not the same at all. For example, in aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, complications include rebleeding, vasospasm, and cerebral salt wasting syndrome, which are very, very, very typical of um, aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage and which are not seen almost at all in other types of subarachnoid hemorrhage. Hence the importance of differentiating between the aneurysmal bleeds versus the non-aneurysmal bleeds. It'll, it'll change the management both acutely and subacutely in these patients and will give us a completely different prognosis um, once we've uh, better identified the cause of the hemorrhage and the severity of the hemorrhage. Excellent. Thank you. Um, one of the classic questions we get asked during our EM training is to give 10 to 12 differentials of ST elevation and AKG. And one of those is intracranial hemorrhage. Could it be the pattern that we saw in the AKG uh, that it is related to subarachnoid hemorrhage? What about the tropes? Absolutely. Yeah. What's Absolutely. kind of the pathophysiology behind this? Mm -hmm. So this is actually one of the most challenging clinical scenarios, right? Because when someone presents with typical symptoms of chest pain and so on, and you do your, your ECG and you see uh, ST segment elevations or depressions, you're thinking immediately about myocardial ischemia. The problem with subarachnoid hemorrhage is um, it can mimic acute coronary syndromes, and this is very well described in the literature. Although it is not the most common presentation on ECG, you'll have things like T-wave abnormalities, T-wave inversions, or a notch in the T-wave. You'll have large U-waves or prolonged QT. These are the classic signs that are described with uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage, but ST elevations and ST depressions in some case series have been documented in as much as 10% of patients, which uh, makes it very challenging for the clinicians. In addition to the fact that the troponins are also positive very often in these patients who have Takotsubo's cardiomyopathy secondary to the subarachnoid hemorrhage. So you'll have ECG findings suggestive of an acute coronary syndrome, troponins suggestive of a coronary syndrome, and you might even have echo abnormalities suggestive of um, an acute coronary syndrome. As you know, these patients, when, especially when they develop Takotsubos, they can have very severe regional wall motion abnormalities, which is what makes it so challenging uh, to diagnose these patients. And what will make the difference is often the history of the patients and their, their chief complaint, as well as the, the clinical examination of those patients. Um, so in the, the, the challenge though, is when these patients can't communicate. So especially for you guys in the emergency department, when you receive a patient after an arrest, for instance, who cannot talk, he's intubated, he just had like chest compressions for, I don't know, five, 10 minutes, and uh, he's not communicating with you anymore. And you don't have a story. You just know that he collapsed. There was a witnessed collapse. And then he was pulsed to this. The patient was resuscitated. And then he's brought to your emergency bay. And someone does an ECG. And you see signs that are very suggestive of 
coronary ischemia. If someone does a troponin, it comes back positive. So obviously your first reflex is going to be this is an acute coronary syndrome until proven otherwise. That would be most clinicians' thought process anyways. Unfortunately, in a small number of cases, these patients end up having a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And in fact, it, it is the cause of their syncope. And what's happening in their heart is actually secondary to their intracranial hemorrhage. And unfortunately, these patients are often wheeled into the cath lab, given heparin, given antiplatelet agents, and then you have a disaster where a patient with an, a, a, a newly ruptured aneurysm is now fully anticoagulated and they can re-bleed and die. So, sorry, I took a long tangent here, but all this to say is that this is one of the most challenging clinical scenarios that you'll find. Patients who come in with, S, with, with um, ECG changes suggestive of coronary ischemia, when in fact what they have is a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And the pathophysiology here is really um, adrenergic discharge um, and uh, neural stimulation from the hypothalamus. This, this does actually cause subendocardial ischemia, which is why these patients have ST changes that are suggestive of ischemia. Um, the difference though will be that often the troponins will not be as elevated as in a, in a true acute coronary syndrome and uh, the coronaries are completely clean in these patients. I hope this answers your question. Uh, no, thank you. you. You answered my question, Dr. Badawi, and you opened um, the window to um, um, uh, different clinical scenarios that can be challenging. So if I summarize what you said, um, um, subarachnoid hemorrhage presentation can be subtle sometimes so the patient can come with syncope or cardiac arrest and then we there, there would be ECG changes that may make us think about an ac primary acute coronary syndrome while it may be an, uh, um, a primary um, intracranial process and the way I can think about it uh, as an emergency uh, physician now is the patient is conscious like our case and the history will help guide you or the patient is unconscious so I'll go to the conscious patient, which is our case, uh, um, uh, um, uh, shortly after I mentioned the unconscious patient. So unconscious patient intubated, I'm suspecting um, uh, acute coronary syndrome. If the, there is ST elevation, then it's, it's kind of tough uh, not to take the patient to the cath lab. And um, the European Resuscitation Council 20, uh, 221 guidelines um, actually um, touched on that. They suggested taking the patient to the cath lab if there is high suspicion of acute coronary syndrome such, uh, such as ST elevation. And then if the cath is negative, uh, they recommended CTing the head and the chest of the patient. Uh, while if it was not suggested, uh, there is literature that supports uh, not taking the patient immediately to the cath lab. And then in this undifferentiated patient, uh, CT head uh, is recommended, uh, CT chest plus minus CT abdomen is, is recommended based on the clinical suspicion. So that's for the uh, undifferentiated patient who's comatose. For this case, Dr. Badawi, uh, my question for you is, and it's more of a clinical sense question, so when the neuro team came to ask the patient, the patient characterized her headache as severe. And the reason I'm mentioning this, as EM physicians, um, we're tasked with managing uh, the flow. The, EM, the, the ER is crowded with patients. So 
we mm -hmm. use a lot of pattern recognition and type one thinking. And the first mm -hmm. thing we saw was an AKG with changes and uh, drops that are high and a patient that looked relatively well. So I think we had fixation bias and early closure and uh, we focused on the heart as the cause of this uh, problem. Uh, where while maybe we should have taken a step back and th think of all the differentials and then the headache may have registered. Mm -hmm. My question for you, in the ICU, you also face uh, many times undifferentiated patients. How do you address such biases? Well, I mean, the, the question of how do you address fixation errors is a great one. And clearly here, this is a perfect example of it. And yes, we do tend as, as physicians to use our system thinking often where we you know recognize patterns and go down predetermined algorithms um and obviously because of this we are prone to error uh, it, it is going to happen and the most important strategy for overcoming fixation error is awareness like knowing that that risk exists and thinking outside the box always having it in the back of our minds that we it might not be the most obvious diagnosis that is the case in this uh, in this scenario, um, accepting the fact that our first assumption might be wrong, um, considering alternative explanations and considering artifacts as uh, the last explanation for a problem. So you mentioned, for instance, that the patient, uh, you know, was not complaining of chest pain, was not complaining of shortness of breath, but on the review of systems, she had a headache. So. Given the patient's ECG, given the history of syncope, given the positive troponins, the, the I would say the average physician will most likely classify that headache under the banner of artifact. You know, it's just whatever, something on the side, something to remember, but not necessarily to act on right away. And I think that's a very common way of thinking. Um, however, if you, in retrospect, obviously now you have 20-20 vision, you're like, this is the chief complaint of the patient. Although she did have an episode of syncope, she waited two days before presenting to the emergency department. And now she's there with a headache and this history of syncope. So it's almost like it's the opposite. Like the chief complaint could have been the headache, but she might have had communication issues. She might not have expressed herself very well. Regardless, you're, you're taking down this other pathway. So as I said, the most important strategy to avoid such errors is through awareness. And this can be achieved by through things like MM rounds, reading articles, didactic teaching, and simulations. And individuals must be made aware of what fixation errors are, led through exercises where fixation errors have occurred, and then walk through these errors, uh, you know, in a, in a controlled environment where they'll get feedback from mentors and from teachers. And through exposures, uh, trainees, residents, um, and physicians alike, they're going to be taught that shortcuts and obvious conclusions can be pitfalls to fixation errors. So I think, you know, it's a it's a complex problem. It's not an easy problem, the, the, the issue of fixation errors, and there's no easy solution. But you already have uh, the biggest part of the solution, which is to be aware. So through these constant, you know, M&Ms and journal clubs and so on, eventually you'll you'll learn that our thought process is flawed. Nice. Thank you, Dr. Badawi. Uh, uh, one thing to add from, from my training, one of my mentors, um, and again, we were pressured to uh, see more and more patients and emerge, but I found him 
pause every two hours and go through the list of patients and, uh, mis- and, and um, going through the story and even asking me if we are missing anything. In, mm-hmm. in, initially, when he was doing this, I thought he was just making a point to, to you know, to teach me something. But mm-hmm. I found him genuinely doing this, uh, not to miss anything else, especially with complex patients uh, that we meet and emerge nowadays. And mm-hmm. I, I found this practice to be very helpful. And, and from time to time, we get things that we are, we are missing. Uh, so just mm-hmm. yeah, a small thing to add that I learned from one of my mentors during the residency. Absolutely. So mental checklists are the type of thing that will really allow us to avoid uh, fixation errors as well. And asking or seeking a second opinion, which is clearly what your mentor was doing. Like that's a brilliant strategy to avoid fixation errors as well. So uh, asking you, you know, is there anything that we're forgetting? Let's go through the list again. He's both seeking a second opinion and kind of in his mind going through a checklist of the patients and their diagnosis and whether or not he should consider alternative diagnoses or alternative issues. So it's a, it's a very good strategy. Nice. Uh, so, Dr. Badawi, uh, now we'll move to the management of subarachnoid hemorrhage. I will not go in through investigation because I feel um, from emerge standpoint, uh, there is so much discussion in our teaching and literature. Uh, uh, but the management part, uh, there is some discussion, but I would like to touch more on it with you. So uh, what's for, for an, um, um, an intensivist, a neurointensivist like you, What's the most important elements of management uh, that you would like to uh, ask as emergency to to initiate in an uh, ER? So obviously, I, I'm guessing here what you what you're you're referring to is once the diagnosis is made, what would the neurointensivist want the emergency physician to start uh, while the patient is waiting for transfer? Right? If I if I understand correctly. Exactly. Very good. So. First, I'll start by telling you that the management of subarachnoid hemorrhage needs to be seen as done in two distinct phases. The first one is before the aneurysm is secured, uh, which is what you are faced with in the emergency department. And the second phase is after the aneurysm is secured, which is what we're faced with in the neurocritical care unit once the patient comes back from the coiling or the clipping of the aneurysm. So before the aneurysm is secured, so the patient is still in the emergency department waiting for transfer, your number one priority is preventing rebleeding from that aneurysm. As you, so as you may know, the aneurysm, once it ruptures, it doesn't continuously bleed. It bled once. It caused a terrible headache to the patient. That bleed is often referred to as the sentinel bleed. And then a clot forms either in or around the aneurysm and tamponades the bleed. During this time, typically the patients present to the emergency department complaining of headaches. We scan them, we make the diagnosis of uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage. But during this time, the aneurysm isn't continuously bleeding. It stopped bleeding, but it's at very high risk of re-bleeding. It's a very fragile blood clot and a very fragile aneurysmal wall. And so there are three interventions that you need to do to prevent this patient from re-bleeding. The first one is blood pressure control. So you want to target a blood pressure, a systolic blood pressure below 160, and you want to use IV rapidly titratable agents. Second, you want to administer an antifibrinolytic such as tranexamic acid. Typically, we'll give one gram of tranexamic acid every six hours intravenously until the aneurysm is secured or for a maximum of 72 hours. And the last thing you want to do is you want to accelerate the securing of the aneurysm. So once the diagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage is made, 
then you're going to start the hunt for the aneurysm, the so or rather the hunt for the source of the bleed. So the patients are going to undergo CT angiograms, um, digital subtraction angiograms, or uh, uh, traditional angio, and finally, or finally, um, MR angiogram. So these are the three modalities that are typically used to identify the vascular lesion that caused the hemorrhage. And once it's identified, then the neurosurgeons will be consulted and uh, they will, the patient will either go for clipping or coiling of their aneurysm. So your job is, it's a, the, the emergency physician's uh, number one role should really be to accelerate the process uh, in, in uh, getting this patient transferred, getting him imaged, and uh, getting him eventually treated permanently for this, uh, the, the, the aneurysm. So that's it. I would summarize it in, in these three points. So blood pressure control, administration of antifibrinolytics, and then finding and securing the aneurysm. That's what the number one priority is for these patients. Once the patient's aneurysm is secured and they're transferred to the neurocritical care unit, then the objectives are completely different. And what we do there is completely different uh, from that point on. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Badawi. And I think you mentioned the target blood pressure. Uh, uh, I don't know if I missed that. Yes. So the target blood pressure is 160, below 160 millimeters of mercury systolic. So you want to absolutely keep the blood pressure below 160 at, at all times. Fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Badawi. I'll get into th some elements of the management. And mm -hmm. um, I don't know if they're relevant to uh, emerge or not, but um, I know nimodipine is important to prevent uh, vasospasm. Uh, mm -hmm. Is it important to start it and emerge, or if the patient is going to be transferred soon, uh, then uh, you, you guys can't start it at the, uh, the neurointensive unit? So nimodipine has an uh, has a like an indisputable role in the management of subarachnoid hemorrhage, um, and it should be started as early as possible. Now, if you do not have it in your emergency department, it's fine. The patient, you know, we, we don't delay transfer to start the nemodipine. Um, But if you do have it, it's great. It'll help you manage the blood pressure. And it also has neuroprotective effects in this patient. And nemodipine is the treatment for subarachnoid hemorrhage that has the biggest number of randomized controlled trials um, demonstrating its benefit. It decreases both morbidity and mortality in patients after subarachnoid hemorrhage. And there are at least 10 or 11 randomized controlled trials done between the 19, late, uh, early 1980s to late 1990s, all showing that um, this drug has absolute benefit for patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage. It's uh, one of the only recommendations that has a level 1A level of evidence. Okay, so what about seizure prevention? So seizure prophylaxis is typically not indicated in subarachnoid hemorrhage. It was, well, it, I would say it's still controversial. Like there are a few centers that still give it prophylactically. However, the studies have really been inconclusive with that regards. Uh, they do not reduce the risk of having, uh, they do not reduce the risk of uh, developing seizures in the, during the course of the, the, the patient's stay. And there might be trends towards worse neurological outcomes if they're given prophylactically. However, if a patient seizes and it's witnessed in the context of a subarachnoid hemorrhage or the presenting symptom is a seizure, then there's definitely a role for anti-epileptic drugs. But don't give it in prevention of. So if the history is clear, the patient had 
a sudden onset of the worst headache of his life, comes to your emergency department, has never lost consciousness and has never seized in front of everyone, you don't need to start anti-epileptic drugs. But if there is a loss of consciousness and there's diagnostic uncertainty with regards to whether or not the patient has seized, then yes, you should consider giving an anti-epileptic drug. But prophylaxis is not indicated. So it's really treatment of witness seizures or in a situation of uncertainty where we don't know uh, the loss, if the loss of consciousness in this patient was actually due to seizures or intri increased intracranial pressure or an arrhythmia, like, you know, the, the causes of syncope and subarachnoid hemorrhage are also numerous. So in that case, yes, I would say start the anti-epileptic drug because you don't know if the patient had a seizure or not, and you want to you avoid it recurring if the patient had had a seizure. So that's it for uh, seizure prevention. Excellent. Um, any role of managing hyperglycemia in this patient population? Yeah, so all the causes of uh, secondary injury to the brain should be managed actively. So you want to avoid things like hyperglycemia, hypoglycemia, hypoxemia, fever, seizures. So all these things that will cause secondary brain injury from the traumatic brain injury literature will obviously cause additional injury in, in, in the patient who suffered a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So yes, you will want to control the glucose. And, and there are studies showing that hyperglycemia and glycemic load is an independent factor of morbidity and mortality in subarachnoid hemorrhage patients. So you definitely want to keep a, a good control on that. Excellent. And, and before I get into the airway, Dr. Badawi, what about pain and nausea management? Does it make a difference in this patient population? Um, so you want to treat it for compassionate reasons, but also because it will help you manage the, the blood pressure. A patient with uncontrolled pain uh, or with uh, refractory nausea vomiting, it will cause spikes in the blood pressure. So you should absolutely treat the pain with intravenous drugs, including intravenous narcotics. It is indicated here. Um, acetaminophen is also indicated and any other drugs, but we do avoid the NSAIDs before the aneurysm is secured because of their effect on the platelets. Uh, so yes, pain control, pain management rather uh, is paramount here. And you should you should use every uh, tool you have in your toolbox to control pain uh, to a tolerable level, which will assist you in the management of the blood pressure and, and the patients will just be more comfortable and, and easier to manage in your emergency department. Excellent. Now for the airway, Dr. Badawi, uh, let's assume the patient's level of consciousness deteriorated and I need to intubate. Any different mm. consideration in this situation? Absolutely. So laryngoscopy and intubation is the single most dangerous intervention that a physician in the emergency department can do to his patients if it's not done properly. And what do I mean by done properly? Uh, so you need to avoid spikes in blood pressure as much as possible. Like you, you need to absolutely avoid spikes in blood pressure during the procedure. So you need a deep anesthetic before you perform your laryngoscopy and intubation. As you know, laryngoscopy is one of the most painful medical procedures that we perform on our patients. And typically in anesthesia, uh, we'll do them with the patients very deeply anesthetized. And so there's not much of an increase in the blood pressure. But in the emergency department, Oftentimes what happens is the patients come in with hemodynamic instability. And so a common reflex in the emergency department is to give the smallest amount of drug possible to induce unconsciousness before intubating the patients. 
as you can imagine, that strategy for subarachnoid hemorrhage, for a patient suffering from a subarachnoid hemorrhage, will almost inevitably lead to a very severe spike in blood pressure. And this will result in a rupture of the aneurysm and a rebleed. And we know from published literature that uh, a rebleed in a patient who suffered a subarachnoid hemorrhage in and of itself is associated with about a 70% mortality uh, and, and the inability to leave the hospital. So the patients will are really, really affected by uh, rebleeds. Like it, it really decreases their, out, their um, chances of leaving the hospital, of having a good neurological outcome significantly. And so laryngoscopy and intubation have to be uh, done with extreme caution. And so our approach to it is the following. We'll typically give a dose of lidocaine intravenous because it, it will blunt the hemodynamic response in and of itself. Then we will, so like 100 milligrams of lidocaine, uh, typically, or 150 milligrams of lidocaine IV. Then we'll give a heavy dose of narcotics, so something like fentanyl, uh, three to four micrograms per kilogram. Then a heavy dose of propofol, um, typically uh, two to three milligrams per kilogram, and then uh, rocuronium, and we'll go ahead and intubate. And we will not have a junior trainee do this laryngoscopy and intubation because you want to do it in the slickest way possible. So you want to minimize the time of laryngoscopy, minimize the trauma to the upper airway, make this the least stimulating possible so that the patient's the patient does not have a spike in blood pressure. That's really your number one priority. And you obviously want to avoid missing. So you want to avoid, uh, you know, having a trainee intubate and then intubate the esophagus by accident. And the, then the patient suffers hypoxemia and secondary injury. So uh, give the patient a deep anesthetic, a deep induction before you intubate the patient. And you want to minimize the uh, stimulation as much as possible during your laryngoscopy. Um, so that's one thing. And another thing that I want to mention that's super important is don't fear hypotension as much as you should fear hypertension during your laryngoscopy and intubation. So giving a heavy dose of anesthesia will almost invariably cause transient hypotension. And you might tell me, well, what if the patient has high ICP and then you're inducing hypotension, so you're decreasing cerebral perfusion? Yes, that is true, but it's very momentarily. And you're also going to treat the hypertension. You're not just going to leave it be. Whereas, a, so a, a small dip and a small blip or a small increase in the blood pressure, which can uh, induce a rupture or re-rupture of your aneurysm. So in those instances, I would say err on the side of hypotension transiently much more than you should err on the side of potential hypertension spikes. I hope that answers the question regarding the uh, intubation of patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage. No, it does. And, and, and wow, thank Hello? you. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Can you hear me? Yes, absolutely. I wanted to add one more thing, uh, Mustafa. So regarding um, laryngitis, so regarding intubation, we typically will avoid intubating these patients unless their level of consciousness is really, really bad. So unless their level of consciousness is truly like a seven or an eight on the Glasgow Coma Scale, we will tend to keep these patients not intubated. As long as you can 
they're kind of protecting their airway. We would much rather not lose our neurological exam rather than intubating them prophylactically. They just do better when they're not intubated. So that's my other recommendation. Unless the patient is wildly agitated and you cannot scan their head, then you should leave them breathing on their own. If they're very, very agitated to the point where you can't scan them at all, then yes, you should go ahead and intubate them with the precautions that I mentioned. Or if the patient is comatose, obviously they need to be intubated at that point. But if they're confused, but somewhat cooperative, just let them be. Like one of the worst situations we get is when they're prophylactically intubated. So the patient comes in and the diagnosis of a subarachnoid is made. And then before transfer, the eMERGE physician decides to intubate them just in case. And the patient comes to us and then we repeat the scan. And now the, the uh, fissure grade one has become a fissure grade four and the patient's outcome is now dismal. So that's another thing that I want to mention about intubation. Don't do it prophylactically. Like try to avoid it as much as possible. But if the patient is obviously comatose, you're going to intubate. And if the patient is unmanageable because they're too agitated, then yes, intubate. Wow. No, thank you, Dr. Badawi. Like uh, this adds a lot to um, my information on, on intubating uh, these patients. Uh, as you were mentioning, uh, using propofol, using fentanyl, I, I was thinking in my head, I'm going to drop the blood pressure. So I was going to ask you, should I give mm -hmm. these patients nusipinephrine, which I usually do when I intubate, for example, my septic patients uh, to avoid hypotension mm -hmm. in them. But then now you mentioned it's acceptable to have transient dips and blood pressure just to protect ourselves from a hypertension in this patient population. That That's quite important. Thank you for um, um, uh, mentioning that. Exactly. Nice, no nice. Problem. Yeah, um, so I, I'm done with my questions, Dr. Badawi. Before I summarize, do you have anything else you want to add um, about the management of these patients? Oh, regarding uh, the choice of IV agents uh, to control the blood pressure. So that's a common question that I get from trainees, like what drug should we use? Um, so the, you want rapidly titratable intravenous agents, such as labidolol, hydralazine, and IV nicardipine which I'm not sure we have in Canada currently. At some point, we did have access to it and we didn't have access to it. So I'm not really sure, but I know in the States, it's widely available. Um, so drugs to avoid in general, and there's the, the American Heart Association even recommends, has a recommendation against the use of nitroprusside in subarachnoid hemorrhage because uh, it does cause vasodilatation, does increase the ICP, and with long-term infusion does have some uh, toxicity to, to the rest of the body. So avoid the dilators such as nitroprusside and nitroglycerin. Um, hydralazine also has these unfortunate effects, but not as much as nitroprusside and nitroglycerin. Uh, and it is generally acceptable to be given, like we will typically give uh, hydralazine if the, if the heart rate is, is too low for the patient to tolerate beta blockers such as labetalol or esmolol. Um, but if the heart rate is high enough, then we would favor beta blockers. And another good drug to use is inalaprilat. It's not as easily titratable as the other drugs. So that's the IV version of inalapril, and it is uh, an ACE inhibitor. So it works by a completely different mechanism. So when the patient's blood pressure is refractory to labetalol, to hydralazine, um, to pain control, because don't forget that's another very important 
aspect of blood pressure management, you need to get their pain under control for the blood pressure to also be under control. So if all of this has failed and the blood pressure is still 170, 180, then uh, I would typically go down the route of inalapril-lat, um, 1.25 or 2.5 milligrams IV dose uh, every six hours. And this um, this really helps for the blood pressure management. Excellent, Dr. Badawi. Thank you very much. Um, we we spoke about many uh, yeah we spoke about many uh, useful things um, around this case uh, to to suggest so to summarize um, first we discussed um, uh, the difference between uh, sub uh, aneurysmal subarachnoid and non aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage and why subarachnoid hemorrhage is a different beast by itself um, and and how it can affect the body and and, and the different complications it has then we discussed the atypical presentations and the effect on the cardiovascular system and the changes on ECG that could be seen in this disease process. Then we went on to discuss um, um, the undifferentiated patient that is comatosed and the possibility of having other causes for uh, the cardiac arrest uh, with ROSC uh, other than uh, astemi, uh, like um, ac acute coronary syndrome, and one of them could be a subarachnoid hemorrhage, and the recommendation is to consider it as a cause of the cardiac arrest. And then we discussed uh, the biases that could happen uh, and, and the early closure bias and how to add uh, some strategies to address the early closure bias. And then when we went on to manage uh, to the management of subarachnoid hemorrhage, and you mentioned that uh, the most important three elements, one, securing the aneurysm, two, um, uh, uh, preventing rebleeding and, and starting an anti-fibrotic fibrolytic agent and controlling the blood pressure. And then when we went into details on the, the strategies on uh, each of those mechanisms, and then finally we discussed intubating uh, these patients. Uh, Dr. Badawi, I cannot thank you enough for this time and all of this useful information. Thank you very much. It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Mustafa, for having me. This was a lot of fun. And uh, I look forward to listening to uh, your podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you very, very much, Mustafa. Bye.